Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I am pleased to interview internationally known local author Jean Hegland about her 2015 novel, Still Time, and historian Kim Bancroft about her book, Writing Themselves into History, which reveals the family life of Emily, Matilda, and H.H. Bancroft through their own writing. Jean Hegland is a teacher, author, and wildfire survivor from Sonoma County. She has released three novels and numerous essays. She may be best known for her novel, Into the Forest, which was released as a motion picture in 2015 and a graphic novel in 2019. Her novel, Still Time, also came out in 2015 and is being re-released in French this year. I caught her as she was readying for a publicity tour in France to talk about Still Time. Her success in getting her books released outside the United States and her experience as an author working with the movie industry. Still Time is a fascinating novel written in part from within the mind of a Shakespearean professor who is suffering from Alzheimer's. That may sound depressing, but surprisingly, it is not. John Wilson's mismanaged personal life, his humble beginnings his estranged relationship with his daughter, and her own struggles are revealed slowly as he toils to complete his greatest work. Reading it, you will learn about Shakespeare, but mostly you'll learn about a family that has come to terms with Alzheimer's. Thank you, Jean, for joining us. My great pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. She's going to read her first selection from Still Time. There was a clock in his fourth grade classroom, a little ticking one that sat like a round black gnome on the teacher's desk. He remembers it watching it, watch over time. Or rather, time doubles back so that he is there still, little Johnny Wilson twisting and fidgeting in his seat as that clock taps his days away, one tick-tock at a time. He is hungry for stories even then, already craving the other lives that stories let him live. Peter Rabbit, Tom Sawyer, Winnie the Pooh, Long John Silver with his bottle of rum. Every book he rescues from his school's neglected library takes him beyond himself, and each time he returns to being simply John, he finds himself enlarged. He is enlarged, too, by words, by their meanings and their sounds, by the way they lull or trouble or thrill him, the spells they cast, soporific, mortified, heffalump ingenious. Whenever his teacher asks the class to look up definitions in the dictionary, it takes him twice as long as any other child because his attention is diverted by every other word his eyes land on. Admontine, adaptable, adulpated, adore. When he and the girl he has adored all year are sent outside to clean erasers, he keeps them busy longer than necessary, smashing the gray pads together with an industry that makes the girl giggle, banging until not one more puff can be coaxed it to billow away into the pollen-laden air. When he leans in to kiss her, he is as astonished by his own audacity as he is by the unexpected softness of her cheek. Back in this strange cul-de-sac of time, John shakes his head in fond amazement at that kiss. No one kissed in his home, or even much in the movies that long ago. And yet, inside that moment, it seemed the inevitable next thing to kiss when he lacked matter to speak. And so he'd pressed his lips against the girl's cheek and held his mouth there, waiting. But before anything more could happen, she'd pulled away, looking solemn for an instant, and then giggling and skipping off, leaving him to cart all the erasers back into the classroom by himself, his pants smeared with chalk, his ears as hot as if he had been leaning against the radiator. Youth's the stuff will not endure. Though, of course, he hadn't understood that then. Back then, old age had been as hard to believe in as love had been a breeze. Slapping the teacher's erasers, kissing that soft cheek, he'd been boy eternal. He'd not believed he would ever grow up, had not believed that he would one day shave or drive, one day leave home. Back then, death had been easier to believe in than old age. Even decades beyond that day, when his waist began to soften and the first white hairs appeared like maggots in his thick brown locks, he had still not really understood that he, John Wilson Hubbard, could ever actually be old, not aching and sagging, not steeped in the million indignities of a body gone soft and stiff, a brain gone too, sans teeth, Sans eyes, sans taste, sans 
everything. All right, Jean, thank you. That is a, a great passage. I came upon Still Time quite by chance. I found it fascinating the way you wrote about Professor John Wilson Hubbard's point of view and how his mind worked. What gave you the idea to explore Alzheimer's in this fashion? My books are always kind of a, a kind of lucky composite of the questions or the things that are interesting me at a certain point in time. And one of the things that had been interesting me that I've been thinking about was dementia. And that was, you know, that was because I was observing friends and family members who were contending it. And I think for a long time in our culture, we've had we've had this great fear of dementia. It's sort of like the, you know, the one thing that we don't want to happen. And I was thinking a lot about that and, and thinking a lot about how it isn't or it doesn't have to be the end of a life. You know, lives aren't over, even when people and family members are contending with dementia. And so that was something I just wanted to explore. Mm, that's interesting. Did you or have you worked with Alzheimer's patients and their families? Yeah, my I've had friends who've had Alzheimer's and family members. And my mother, I was about halfway through writing this book, and she was in her 90s, and it became clear that she was contending with dementia. So, you know, I've had some experience like that. And also, I for about 10 years, was a, worked as a volunteer reading poetry in a memory care facility. And so I would go in once a week and just we'd have a lovely hour, you know, reading poetry. And um, yeah, that was a marvelous experience. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I found John, John's mental state, as you wrote it, very believable. How much of it is fiction and how much of it is research? <laughs> I mean, for me, fiction always is a braid of imagination and research and personal experience. And the challenge with writing, well, the challenge always with writing from another point of view is theory of mind, right? We're always stuck inside our own heads. And I think one of the wonderful things about stories is fiction is what, in stories of all kinds, is what allows us to escape the bonds of our own brains. But it's always an imaginative act because we really can't know for sure. And certainly, you know, when I'm trying to explore the mind of someone who's contending with dementia, it's a huge imaginative leap. So that was based a lot on imagination, but also a lot on my observations of other people, you know, the people I loved and the people, well, the people I loved at the memory care facility too. And, you know, I mean, one thing that I think many people who have experiences with dementia observe is that for people who are contending with memory issues, the things that they often retain the longest are things either early, early childhood memories or things that they've learned by heart. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I did when I was reading poems with the memory care folks was I would find a way to contextualize it so it didn't, I hope, feel, you know, like demeaning or something. But we would we would recite nursery rhymes together because they still remembered those wonderful old poems mm -hmm. that came from this very long, venerable history. So I'd talk about the history and why these are such important poems. And then we'd say, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, and everybody would smile and join in. You know, so it was that sort of experience that gave me some sense of who John might be like on the inside. Oh, that's great. John is a complicated man. You want to feel for him, but at the same time, his messy life and superiority also make you not like him very much. <laughs> was it difficult to walk that line when you conceived of the character? Yeah, it was. I mean, characters are only believable if if they've got some flaws and some redeeming features, right? And But John's got more than his share of flaws. He's made some big mistakes in his life. And I wanted to like him. And I think an even larger challenge was, was writing a character that, that readers would tolerate and find reasons to care about and love and find reasons to really hope that, you know, the things that were challenging him could be resolved and work out well. But yeah, it's a fine line to show all his flaws and still, you know, find the reasons to love him. Why Shakespeare? <laughs> because... <laughs> I was really lucky. I grew up in a family where Shakespeare was just like, you know, baseball. It was just a wonder, another wonderful, rich thing in life. And every summer, my family would, you know, put us in the car and we'd drive down and camp outside Ashland, Oregon and go to the Shakespeare Festival. And we, you know, the kids would fall asleep halfway through the performance and, you know, 
wake up and we'd have go home and roast s'mores. You know, it was just, it was fun. And we perpetuated that in our family growing up. In fact, I just came back from Ashland and my four of my six granddaughters were there. They're 18, 20 years old. They're convinced that it's the most wonderful thing to do. You know, I mean, it's just, we brainwashed them. And um, so Shakespeare has always just been this really rich, magical, wonderful, not serious or terribly scary thing. When I got the idea for this book, I was actually at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And I often have this experience of sort of lines floating around in my mind after I've seen a play. And I sort of thought, I wonder what that would be like for somebody who really knew Shakespeare well. And then it was just such a marvelous experience to collaborate with Shakespeare, you know, because I, I wanted to write a book that wouldn't be off-putting to people who, who don't know anything about Shakespeare or even feel like they have Shakespeare allergies, but that would also resonate with people who knew more you know, than I do. Mm-hmm. And so it was this wonderful way to just do a deep, deep dive into those plays. And it is, too, because, I mean, I studied Shakespeare in college. I mean, we all do if we're English majors. But there were things that I was like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about Shakespeare. Oh, my God, I've forgotten all about that. You know, I mean, just that kind of, like, visceral experience when you're reading it of, of kind of taking you back to your college days, but then also, you know, hitting you in places that you just didn't either you didn't understand back then or you just you know never got that education from whatever teacher you were taking it from so I enjoyed it thoroughly so are your characters made up entirely or are they people or pieces of people you've met or known yeah that's a good question and it's the same you know it's it's imagination and experience and research that same braid you know Gustave Flaubert when his friends asked him where he got the idea to write about the wife of a provincial doctor and who's totally unlike Flaubert he said Madame Bovary c'est moi I'm Madame Bovary I mean part partly they're all me right I'm John with you know, the four wives and the, and a lot of it is imagination. And, but also based on little snippets of people that I've known. I, I knew a, a Shakespeare professor that might be a little bit like John Wilson. All right. Jean's going to read a second selection from her novel, Still Time. Go ahead, Jean. Thank you. So this is much later in the book. John is remembering an experience with his brand new baby daughter, this this daughter from whom he's been estranged recently. The daughter, Miranda, is is trying very hard to make a connection with him as he's he's fading. And he's responding to that, but he's also struggling, you know, with his own memory issues. But this is a moment that comes back very clearly to him. He remembers singing. He remembers trying to transmute a handful of lines into a tune for the sake of the infant screaming in his arms. A creature so tormented with gas or colic or existential despair that her face looks bee-stung and her little body arches and stiffens as she cries. He's never sung for another person before. He knows he has a magnificent speaking voice. People tell him he reads beautifully. He can command the attention of a lecture hall full of freshmen with his voice alone, and yet his singing voice is surprisingly feeble. Fear no more the heat of the sun, he begins in a croak, borrowing the words from Shakespeare's early romance, Cymbeline, nor the furious winter's rages. Groping for notes he is not sure he can find, he tries to turn the dirge King Cymbeline's rustic sons sing over the inert body of the youth they later discover to be their living sister into a lullaby. Thou thy worldly task hath done, home art gone, and tain thy wages. Because Shakespeare's tune has not survived the centuries, John has had to cobble one of his own. He feels so uncertain at first. Even at midnight, even in his own living room, it is as if he fears his brand new daughter will interrupt her sobbing to criticize his song. But he is desperate for silence, desperate for sleep, desperate to make her quit crying, and so he persists, and slowly his voice grows more confident. Slowly the melody becomes clearer as the hour wears on. Golden lads and last girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. He sings, taking pleasure in recalling that dandelions were called golden lads in Shakespeare's time, that dandelions gone to seed were known as 
his chimney sweepers, savoring those homey proofs that whatever will Shakespeare became, in some part of his great heart, he had always been a country lad. All lovers young, all lovers must consign to thee and come to dust. They are the words of a lament and not a lullaby, and John feels a nibble of guilt or even superstition to be singing them to some so newly come to this great stage of fools. But somehow it seems right, too, to be sharing with that screaming barn both the beauty and the tragedy of the world she's been thrust into, as though he were warning her and promising her, even as he tries to shush her. And gradually, a different quality seems to enter her wailing. It is as if her attention were being divided, as if she were listening, even as she cries. Slowly, the space between her sobs grows longer, until finally, with one last, deep, shuddering exhalation, her eyes sag shut, and she is asleep. Fear no more. Pacing that tired square of floor, he'd been desperate to hush her, desperate to get her into the crib so that he can turn to his nightcap, his book, and bed. But now, alongside his relief that she is finally sleeping, he wishes his, his success hadn't made him obsolete. He is oddly reluctant to return to the rest of his life, a drink, a book, a sleep, and then what? Gazing into her soft face, he believes that all his sorrows, both past and yet to come, can never be as full as that moment's joy. Thank you. John clearly loves his infant daughter. However, he is still as focused on his own ego more than her comfort. What was your intent with that vignette? I mean, I think it's true. You know, in that moment, he feels this kind of profound connection with her. And he finds it in you know, in an odd way through Shakespeare. And that's one of the uh, one of the sort of things that is challenging and troubling and fascinating. And I'd like to think, you know, moving about the whole book, because Shakespeare is both the lens that allows him to make connections, but it also really gets in his way of making genuine human connections. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's brilliant, really. <laughs> that's kind. <laughs> so, I really like John's daughter, Miranda. He blames her for his failures. Yet she, as the person with a sound mind, has to decide if she can forgive him for his parenting choices. Her experience as a teenager is slowly revealed to the reader, building a sense of tension that keeps you turning the page. Did her father's illness create a safe place for her to heal? So, Michelle, I love that question. I had not... And nobody had ever asked. I had not thought about it. Nobody had ever asked about it in, in quite that way. And it just really invited me to, to think about Thank you. Because I, th I think that's a, a super insight. I mean, the, so the question is, had he not had dementia, would they have been able to reconcile? And what would that have looked like? And obviously, if they'd been able to, it would have been very different. And in one way, it maybe did allow her kind of the space and the compassion. And it also broke down some of John's barriers, some of his, his walls, and gave him a new way of connecting. I know other people have talked about how, you know, they, they've been able to connect in, in new ways with people who are, you know, are contending with dementia. And, you know, I, I, maybe so. Maybe it did give them some kind of space. If that have, Would that have been the only way they would have connected? Who knows? John is on his fourth wife. Her character weaves in and out of the novel, but is mostly absent as the book moves forward. What is her purpose? Is she a metaphor for John's lost sense of place? Yeah, and that was another really good question. John has, has kind of screwed up his love life pretty badly. The first wife was a missed opportunity. The second wife was a real mistake. And the third wife was also a mistake. And late in life, he has this kind of unexpected chance. He meets a woman who's a beekeeper who really doesn't know anything about Shakespeare and only learns to care about Shakespeare because she cares about John. And she is a marvelous woman. I love Sally. And I think everybody else. I think people feel some ambivalence about John and his mistakes. Sally is somebody to just really love. And yet it's John's story. You know, she can't take over the story. And John, when the majority of the story is taking place, she's not able to live with him any longer. And so she appears in really rich ways, but she's not, you know, she's not there for him every day in ways that she and he would both like. Okay. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. 
We will return to an interview with Jean Heglin about her experiences with international publishing, working with the film industry, and her writing process. I also read Into the Forest, which read a little like a young adult novel. Well, Still Time feels very much like a novel for older readers. Would you categorize either of them that way? When I was first trying to get Into the Forest published, this was a long time ago, and it kept getting rejected, and agents you know, kept not being interested in it because they said main characters are teenagers, so it's by definition, a young adult book, but it's dealing with really heavy themes. And so we wouldn't know where to publish it. Well, things have changed in the young adult world a good deal since that that time. And, you know, still time just because it's about an older man may resonate a different way. But yeah, I, I suppose you could categorize them like that. Do your fans follow you from one genre to the next? My agent recently said that my books are also different. It's as though I were their mother and they all had different fathers. (laughs) Shakespeare, you know, was definitely the father of still time. And to some extent, though I think it's also been a bit of a challenge because they are really different and and their immediate audiences might be different readers. I mean, deep in their DNA, I'd like to think they are interested in some of the same questions and have some of the same values. But yeah, I think that's been a challenge to some extent because it's sort of like starting over every time. It's not like I'm writing the same book twice. (laughs) Is there a sequel to Into the Forest? In the works? There is, actually, after having said they're all so different. But this one is very, very different from Into the Forest. And it's coming out in France next year, and and my agent's going to find a a U.S. publisher for it this fall. And it's called? Here in this next new now. You're the first author I've interviewed whose work has been turned into a major motion picture. As a writer, what was that experience like? (laughs) The thing is, I'm not a movie person. I'm a book person. So in one way, it was sort of lost on me. It was very interesting, but it's not like I'd always dreamed of, you know, I I just, I love books. And so that's kind of where my heart is. And it had been optioned several times before, and those had fallen, you know, apart as as they do. And then Elliot Page found the book, thanks to an independent bookseller, who told him that that would be, that might be a book that, you know, he'd be interested in. And I spoke with Elliot early on, you know, and, and they convinced me that they had the book's best interests at heart. And I chose not to be involved in the in the development of the film. My mother was ill by that point, and I wanted to spend time with her, and I was working on another book. And I also just didn't really trust how wise my insights would have been about the film and the making of the film and how much power I would have even had to, you know, insist on certain ideas. I just showed up at the premiere at the Toronto Film Festival and sat next to Evan Rachel Wood, and when she started crying during the film, I thought, oh, oh, I'm such a horrible person. I've made this wonderful Evan Rachel would cry and I put my arm around her. <laughs> so it was sort of like just showing up and, you know, at Christmas time and opening a Christmas present and oh, seeing what it was. I, yeah. that, that might be the healthiest response I've ever, I could imagine for someone <laughs> whose book is turned into a movie. When I see a movie made from a book that I feel like I know pretty well, I mean, there's parts that you're thinking, oh, that's that's smart, that's cool. And there were one or two things that I even wished I'd put in the book. And then there were other parts where I was like, mm, yeah, mm, I don't know, I don't quite get it. You know, but that's just the ad- adaptation process, I think. Still Time is being released in French this year. How did the international releases of your novels come about? Into the Forest has been translated into, I think, about 16 languages by now. And it's just there's a whole market of sub-agents who are looking for books to translate into other languages. And Into the Forest got lucky. And then I think it was, frankly, thanks to the movie, because it hadn't been translated in French. It had been translated you know, fairly early on into all these other wonderful, luscious languages, but not French. But then after the movie came out, there was another little, you know, burst of interest. At that point, a French publisher picked it up and it sold 300,000 copies in France. It's had this amazing little career, you know, but that's just how it goes. It's just sort of sub-agents looking for books that might be interesting. I, I wasn't even aware of that, so there you go. Yeah, so. <laughs> all the little worlds. All the yeah. worlds. Can you read the other language, and how do you assure yourself it's accurate? Yeah, no. I mean, I can't read Polish. I can't read, you know, Japanese. I can't read. I'm reawakening my, you know, high school and college French, but I, I can't. I can't read it. I, so it's other other readers, you know, who, who sort of validate it. I've worked closely with some translators, you know, more or less closely. I worked very closely with the translator 
who the French translator for for still time because you can imagine the job I mean there's Shakespeare just sort of woven into John's natural language so that many people wouldn't even notice that it was Shakespeare probably and and so we worked really closely which was really fascinating and fun but it has a whole new life in another language it's it's strange you know because the books show up in the mail and you get like the the Danish copy of a book and you think I wrote that and I can't read a word of it <laughs> I guess I'm curious is she Shakespeare popular in France? Is Shakespeare popular in English? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's worlds. Yeah. And and of course people know know of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And I went to a French production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in one of the parks in Paris a couple years ago. You know, so it's it's still alive. Mm-hmm. Probably not not as much as in English, but people are going to know and be predisposed to be interested. I hope. It's mm, good. You've written an essay about the experience of your home being destroyed in a wildfire. Will that experience appear in one of your novels? It certainly influenced, you know, the last three years of my life. And as always, you know, it's that imagination and research and experience. And I suspect that it is going to um, show up in one way or another, yeah. Okay, so now we're going to get to the part that's mostly for us writers. How often do you write? I try to do daily, and I also try not to be bad-tempered when I don't get my writing time because the rest of life intervenes, yeah. Okay, do you have a dedicated space? I do, I'm really lucky. Back when we were living in our forest outside of Healdsburg, for a long time I had a travel trailer with flat tires that was across the yard from the house house that I used. And then a young friend of ours had built a tiny house that we bought. And that was my wonderful workspace. And now that we're in Chico, um, I have a, a lovely little office. That... Do you write it all and then go back or do you edit as you go? It takes me years to write a book and dozens and dozens of drafts. And so I try to like produce mo- new material and then go back and, and think about it and edit. But sometimes it's hard not to indulge a little bit of that, you know, editing as I go along. Do you enjoy editing? Yeah, I like it better. <laughs> than I, it's, it's really, you know, it's that, that thing of like, when I'm editing, I like to think I know what I'm doing, and I'm just making it better. And when I'm just producing new material, I, you know, it's like making mud or clay or something, right, for making a pot. So it's just this mess, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know if I can do it and it's really scary and I'm not smart enough and I you know yeah editing is nice. (laughs) Do you work on multiple novels at the same time or do you just focus on one? Only when I'm in sort of the stage I'm at now where I'm sort of doing the final edits for one and there's another one you know the next one I mean there's always one kind of alive and so so there's a little bit of overlay there but otherwise it's just it's a big enough my my brain is small enough and a book is big enough that just you know keeping it one in my head is a challenge enough tell us about your upcoming tour in France what's what's going what's going to be what's that going to be like I'm sure it'll be fun I've been really really lucky this is like the sixth or eighth time I've been to France for book tours and you know they're all very different but it's just fascinating. If it's anything like the previous ones, I'll be going to tiny bookstores that have just been open and bookstores that have been bookstores for 300 years and all around France. And vive la France, there's still a real reading culture in France. So there are just, there's lots of bookstores. And so, and also book book festivals, literary festivals, which are also really fun because you meet other writers, which is always a real treat. What's better than readers, writers, and booksellers, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's my heaven. But when you read do you read it in English and then somebody else translate it or does somebody else do the reading in French? So often what happens, it's almost always that in conversation system that more and more, I think, readings in America are going to. You don't have to show up and say, well, I'm Jean and this is this and I did this. You know, it's a super gift because somebody's read the book really carefully like you have and are asking questions. So it's that kind of a conversation. And my responses will be translated you know so it's so I'll answer in English and then there'll be a translator who will respond in French but it's definitely why I'm trying to improve my French (laughs) (laughs) great all right thank you Jean for taking the time to meet with me my great pleasure Michelle thanks a lot great thank you for joining us for season two of Upwelling you've been listening to an interview with local author Jean Heglin about her novel Still Time 
Coming up, I'll interview historian Kim Bancroft about her recent release, Writing Themselves into History. Kim Bancroft is a teacher and historian who has published three books. She's also a descendant of H.H. H. Bancroft, the determined force behind the Bancroft Library that is housed at UC Berkeley. Kim Bancroft's book, Writing Themselves into History, takes us back in time to the late 1800s and early 1900s and gives us a window into H.H. H. Bancroft's family life and the day-to-day -day doings of an upper-middle-class housewife. She includes quotes from an extensive collection of letters and journals written by his wives, Emily and Matilda, and tells their stories in their own words. So the first selection comes from Emily. Her mother and father were in Buffalo, New York. She was about to go off on a grand tour with her husband to Europe. So here's a little section that I wrote about that trip and then a little bit of her voice in a letter that she wrote to her father. Halfway through her trip, a terrible loss left Emily bereft. While in Spain in January 1867, the couple learned that her mother, Lamira Callender Ketchum, had passed away, the cause never stated in Emily's letters. Anyone who has lost a cherished mother can identify with Emily's sorrow, especially if that loss is multiplied by insuperable separation from the beloved. When Emily left Buffalo, her mother, not quite 63, had been ill, though seemingly not deathly so. Perhaps Lamira did not let her daughter know how sick she was so that Emily would still embark on her rare and wonderful European tour. In her first letter to her father after learning of her mother's passing, Emily expressed great guilt at having abandoned her mother. Writing now to her father alone, Emily called on her faith to cope with her own grief while hoping to support her remaining parent age 69. She wrote, My dear Pa, to think I can never say Pa and Ma anymore. Your letters reached us this morning. My husband, who saw them first and found they were both from you, was afraid they contained bad news, and with his usual thoughtfulness gave me the earliest date in which you told me of Ma's sickness first. But the news came to me as you said it did to you, as suddenly as if she had not been sick that she was now gone. It seems as if I never could forgive myself for coming over here to recover from the disappointment of not seeing her again. I've looked forward for several years to being with her during her last sickness, felt it would be such a privilege. She seemed so ripe for heaven this summer. I might have known I would never see her again. I believe too readily what the doctor said, that she might live two or three years yet, but they would be years of great suffering. We should rejoice that she was spared that, that her sufferings were of no longer duration. But I feel that I have lost my best friend. We can have but one mother, and every day I lived, I have appreciated more and more what a mother I have had. My visit with her last summer is of infinite comfort to me, though I fear I was not much comfort to her. If I had only stayed and been with her these last six months, it seems as if I would not so regret her death, for we know how well prepared she was and how she must have suffered if she had lived with her disease. Pa, you belong to me now. Wherever I have a home, you have one with me. Thank you, Kim. That is a lovely section of the book. As you explain in your writing, Emily is the forgotten first wife. She died young and her poor health kept her housebound and even bedbound at times. In some ways, her life feels like a Dickens novel. Was her experience normal for the period that she lived in? On the one hand, Emily had many good experiences, I'd say, especially as her husband's business was continuing to expand and they had more money, including to hire a servant or two, which Emily needed at time as she was getting sicker and sicker over, over the years. But they also got to have this grand tour in Europe. But she had what I believed was undiagnosed diabetes, there were many signs in the writing that showed that that was probably what she had. And it led to, also to the death of two babies, as well as to the ravaging of her body with fatigue and blindness. And by the end, she called herself a sack of bones. So the fact that she died young and in childbirth was actually sadly normal for the time many, many women died in childbirth. And it was very tragic 
especially as H.H. Bancroft, my great-great-grandfather, wrote about it in his memoir. One of the subjects that was so prominent in your book was the way the Bancrofts, as a typical middle-class family, thought of people of color, Irish people, and Catholics. When you were writing the book, did you fear that readers would turn away because of their antiquated thinking? And were you shocked by the matter-of-fact use of pejoratives in Emily's letters? Well, I hoped not that readers would hear what I was saying about the nature of that kind of writing and thinking that I found in these women's books and letters. I think we have to take on difficult subjects head on as readers and writers. And of course, I'm sorry to have ancestors or family members who had racist ideas or who were bigoted in one way or another, as many of us have especially white people, I don't think it's an excuse to say, well, those were the times. That's how they thought. Because there were white abolitionists, including H.H. Bancroft's family, were abolitionists. And he told a story about taking a wagon load of fugitive enslaved people to freedom on the Underground Railroad in Ohio when he was still 11. But white supremacy has been deeply ingrained in our history, of course, from the taking of Indian lands and lives to the taking of African people for labor. So how can we escape that history? Can we separate out the negative ideas that people had from the positive acts? And that's for each of us to decide concerning those individuals as I see it. I found much in these women's writing to learn from, including how those ideas are now reprehensible to us, such as those pejoratives that Emily and Matilda used. Kim's now going to read her second selection, and this is going to focus on Mr. Bancroft's second wife, Matilda. It's also Kim's great-great-grandmother. Matilda had written a diary or a memory book, as she called it, for each of her four children that I discovered in my 50s. And this one about Lucy had a particular power for me because I remembered having read part of it as a child when I visited the Bancroft Library when I was about eight years old. So when I rediscovered Lucy, it was a wonderful occurrence. And at the beginning of her journal for Lucy, here's what Matilda writes. And as I said, as ever, Matilda's comments on her children's characters were prescient, including the role that Lucy would play in her family. Matilda wrote, while each boy was gladly welcomed, at heart, I was not satisfied till La Petite filled my cup to overflowing. I think Papa perhaps places undue appreciation on boys, and our little one must grow into his heart, and so wind herself into his love that he will wonder how he ever could think slightingly of girls. He accepts the gift without expression of pleasure or disappointment, merely saying, I'm satisfied if you are. But with the announcement, it's a boy, there's no concealing his satisfaction. I continued, like her siblings, Lucy was smart later picking up German quickly and learning the game of whist merely by watching her siblings play. She was also smart enough to realize at the age of five that her father preferred boys, so she decided to become one. Matilda wrote, In the fall, I had Lucy's hair cut short as tight to her head as was possible without shaving it. She had complained that the sun was so hot she wished she could have her curls cut off. She was so anxious to be a boy. The transformation was complete when she put on Philip's outgrown jerseys, her brother's. She called herself Tommy at once. Just as we left the barber's, someone asked her name, and she answered unhesitatingly, Tommy, I'm a boy now. My name is Tommy. When Papa came home, she met him on the road in her new guise, jersey suit, white straw hat, and cropped hair. Of course, he didn't know her for a moment, much to her delight. I continued, Lucy already understood the very different expectations for boys and girls, not only in her family, but in society. In fact, three generations later, when I was a girl growing up in the Bancroft family, Lucy's name had been almost wiped from family consciousness, whereas the three boys, Paul, Griffin, and Philip, played extraordinary roles in perpetuating their father's legacy. As the little sister of rambunctious brothers, Lucy learned gumption, and Matilda admired her for it. You are a spunky little piece, she wrote, but some spunk is necessary to carry you through life. Matilda always looked out for her older girl, stepdaughter Kate, 
and her petite to ensure that the girls would not lose out to boys, clearly beneficiaries of their father's attention, patriarchal views on gender roles, and financial largesse. All right, that's a good way of putting it and summarizing sort of the experience that it seemed like Lucy had as a child. Many of us make efforts to find information about our ancestors, and we're happy to find a census listing or voting record. What was it like to realize you had these handwritten histories of your, at your disposal to not only understand the lives they lived, but the minutiae of housekeeping and child-rearing? Michelle, I was so thrilled to find all this information that my great-great-grandmother had committed to paper. She provided these rich descriptions of family life and events during her time. She captures the children's personalities, the hardworking nature of her husband and his accomplishments as a collector and historian. She explained as well her work as a mother, teacher, writer, oral historian, even a businesswoman. So we get a sense of how she was pushing on the limitations that she faced as a woman in her time. And that was just beautiful to see as well as to learn about all of these family characters I'd never really known about. So while the book is about Hubert Bancroft's wives, he is a prominent character. Did you find anything about him in your research that surprised you? I had edited H.H.'s memoir that came out in 2014 called Literary Industries. In Literary Industries, he explained his own life path to becoming a historian and collector. He'd come to California in 1852 to sell books, and uh, his bookstore continued to grow, his business continued to grow, and then he became fascinated by what was changing on the West Coast because of the gold rush, and thus began his collecting of posters and maps and newspapers, oral histories, all kinds of pamphlets, anything he could find, and that led to the establishment of the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley in 1904. So he was a famous man in his own right at the time, he used his collection to write 39 volumes of what was called Bancroft's works, a history of the whole West. So I thought I had a good sense of his intellect, his ambition, his humor, and even his wisdom as a self-educated man. But I was surprised by what his wives revealed about his personal character, like the generosity he showed to Emily when she would write home about, you won't believe what Hubert bought for me, or he decided to give $5, not $1, to the Chinese cause because the Chinese were being beset by troubles and racism of their own at that time. Or H.H.'s great affection for his children and his wife. Matilda wrote about the many sweet scenes where he would come home and dedicate himself to playing with his children. By then, he was already an older man. So that was very lovely to see. Matilda worked alongside her husband and deserves credit for the mass of historical data that makes up the Bancroft Library. She did this while also running a real estate empire and bringing up four kids. If Matilda was alive today, would she be a feminist? Is Matilda a feminist? I argued this point with a friend of mine who insisted that she was, just as you say, that Matilda was a very strong woman who took what power she had that she could in order to accomplish a lot in the arenas allowed to her. But I've always had a more modern and political perspective on feminism, that it includes a kind of agenda or actions on behalf of promoting women's rights. So I don't think that Matilda was political in that way, but she did insist that her husband take care of ensuring his daughters would have financial stability. The boys were were inheriting some of these large properties that, as you rightly say, were in the family. The girls at least got a home and an annuity so they wouldn't have to rely on a man. And that seems somewhat feminist to me to make sure that the women can take care of themselves no matter what. I think I would agree with that portion of it. The political part of it, at that point, we were probably just at the beginning of the women's rights movement, the right to vote movement. Yes. And there had been efforts in the late 19th century and course, the early 20th century for women to gain suffrage. And there was a letter from H.H. where he decried the suffrage movement because he was a male chauvinist who didn't believe that women needed to have those rights, again, as many men of his time did. And there's nothing overtly political 
that I found in Matilda's writing about women's rights. But she did have very strong ideas about leadership in her own way. And that in that sense, she provided a wonderful role model of a woman who could take charge. When their children were adults, I sensed a rift between Matilda and her husband, H.H. Bancroft, regarding their offspring. He seemed to favor one son and she another. The third son and daughters were mostly on the sidelines. So as a mother, was she blinded by Griffin's charm? That's a good question. There was obviously favoritism by H.H. for his sons, as Matilda's description of Lucy's birth indicates. And two of the sons, Paul and Philip, really towed the line in terms of what their father and mother expected of them. He had very strong ideas about them becoming lawyers, about having a prominent place in society. Griffin was more of an independent rebel, and he didn't want to put up with his father's increasing curmudgeonliness. There were some amazing letters from H.H. that he had written to Griffin complaining ad nauseum for years about Griffin's behavior, how he should get up early in the morning and how he should take his business more seriously. But Griffin was a writer and he did produce several books. And Matilda, it seems, enjoyed trying to help him by editing his work. There are a few letters from her where she wrote about what he could do to improve his work, which led me to believe that had she had an advanced education and the opportunity to be a writer and an editor, she might well have enjoyed a career in that respect. But we also know more about Griffin because his wife, Margaret, ensured that all of those letters that he received from his mother and father were saved and donated to either the Bancroft Library or to UC San Diego because they had lived in Southern California. So I always love to tell people, please save your letters. Go through those drawers and attics and boxes because there there are such valuable things we can learn that people wrote in letters that we don't write letters like that anymore or they're on email and they get tossed or disappear. So having those kinds of archives available is really precious. Lucy and Kate were both interesting women, yet their education and their financial stability were mostly ignored by their father. Did his chauvinism impact the historical record he produced? And is there a lack of information about women of the period? Definitely. H.H. produced, in fact, a set of books chronicling the history of the makers of the West, and not one is a woman, and probably 95% of the oral histories he had done, and Matilda helped do several oral histories of women, Latter-day Saints women at the time. They were mostly men, and so that's why it was very exciting to do a book about the period of history that Matilda and Emily were describing from women's perspectives. Obviously, women didn't have the opportunity to get an advanced education as much as men did and didn't have the power to contribute to history in the way we tend to think that history is important, but that doesn't mean that their experiences and contributions don't don't matter. So it's more social history. What was How was life lived on the streets, in the homes? How were women influencing decisions that men made in the public sphere from the private sphere. You gave us a glimpse of the Bancroft daughters in the epilogue. Lucy's life is mysterious. Are you planning on delving further into their histories with one or two follow-up books? I'm not sure there's a whole book in it, but Lucy was definitely interesting, and I was happy to have an extra chapter that included a lot of the history I learned about her from her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was also a rebel, And she clearly realized that if she couldn't have the kind of freedom that her brothers had, she could take it. And so she ended up living on a ranch in Southern California and being her own important figure during later during World War II, helping with the effort at home to volunteer and never had a relationship that we know of, but there's not very much of a paper trail. So once again, if you don't have the letters and journals and paper, it's hard to create a whole book about somebody in that sense. Writing history or historical novel is terrifying. So many experts are ready to jump on minutiae they think is wrong. Did you experience that or were you concerned about it? And what is the editing process when you are writing history? Well, actually, I would say that writing fiction is more terrifying because there's no 
specific direction you have to go in. When it's history, there's some chronology and there are resources. So one relies on those quite a bit. But it is horrible to think about getting anything wrong. So the editing process is super important. And you have to have various readers, as I did, who can do all kinds of things from find typos to challenge you on certain ideas, find historical errors, help you elaborate on certain points. For example, when I was writing about H.H. Bancroft's parents who had adopted an Indian child, an Apache girl, I was trying to find information about who she was and where she would have come from based on not only H.H.'s writing and Matilda's references, but a journal that Azariah Ashley Bancroft had left behind. This is H.H.'s father. And in the book, in the draft that I submitted to Heyday, my wonderful publisher from Berkeley, one of the editors commented that it would be good to include a reference to the Indian Act that was imposed upon Indian peoples at that time that was supposedly for the benefit of those children and people, but in fact was a, another means of oppressing them. That was a great point, and it helped elaborate on the ways that I think HH's parents thought they were doing right by this child, but in fact it was another act of white supremacy because it was exploiting her history without giving her the benefit of knowing who her parents were. She had obviously been taken from some massacre in Arizona and brought to California. So trying to expand on the history and learn from an editor about how to include that kind of information was really valuable. And it's always a risk to have others read our work and critique it and say, well, you're missing this and you need to say more about that. But that's how our our work gets better. So are you planning any public readings or tours? I have done quite a few already, I'm very fortunate to say, and I have a website that's called kimbancroft.com where I actually list some of the past talks that one can listen to and the events that I've had. I will say that doing publicity and a book tour is very challenging nowadays. There's so much that rides on an author herself or himself to push the book out there. Publishing companies don't necessarily have a big publicity department. So we have a lot of potential reading out there. I mean, you get good writers on your show. I've listened to it and I say, I want that book and I want to read that book. It's very competitive. And that's why I very much appreciate you having me on your show, Michelle, to be able to let our KZYX community know about this particular book. Where can people purchase writing themselves into history? It can be found through a link on my website at kimbancroft.com. Also, Gallery Bookshop here in Fort Bragg had it uh, when I did a book talk here a a while back. You can ask a local bookshop to to buy it for you because it's wonderful to go local and you can find it online. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for joining us for Season 2 of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with local author Jean Heglin about her novel, Still Time, and historian Kim Bancroft about her recent release, Writing Themselves into History. You've been listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg, 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. Please consider donating by clicking the red button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.